0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. There's a lot of talk right now about cities. Cities seem to be the atomic unit of public policy. Smart cities, sustainable cities, social progress cities, cities of culture, industrial cities, music cities. And the ways in which we design and develop cities and public spaces, especially post-COVID, once we are actually post, are central to initiatives like the new European Bauhaus, the Green New Deal, AI for Cities, things that ask questions about not just where shall we live, but also how should we live? Now, someone who's been thinking about city environments from a design, architecture, systems, and social perspective at places like Harvard University, in Qatar University, Geneva, MIT, and Vermont is Dr. Anna Grichting. She's a Swiss architect, urbanist, and musician who's spent her career using arts and design to create a more beautiful, biodiverse, and sustainable world through co-creative, interdisciplinary, and holistic approaches to design projects, especially at the city level. Dr. Anna Grichting, it's great to have you with us for the MTF podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You're very welcome. You're described as various things on the internet, primarily as an urbanist, what's an urbanist?
1: An urbanist is the word we use, I think, a lot in Europe. It obviously has to do with the urban, with cities, with planning. And it's also quite large because it encompasses all the different scales. And, and I'm also particularly interested in landscape urbanism. So it's really this sort of bringing together landscape and urbanism and also architecture and urbanism. And I think obviously, For a few centuries, we've been dividing disciplines and increasingly, especially now looking at ecology, environment, climate change, nature-based solutions, it's even more and more important um, that landscape, what I tell my students or even in conferences is that landscape, in fact, for me is, is the foundation of any project of architecture or urbanism because we need to start from the ground. We need to start from the topography, from the water, from the biodiversity, from the soil Soil is very important. So it's even the landscape uh, aspect which I find very important. And why urbanism? Because in certain countries and disciplines, we tend to talk about architecture, we talk about urban design, we talk about urban planning, and urban planning can be very linked to policy or geography. And so we kind of separate it in different, it can be found in different faculties or different ways of teaching. And so for me, urbanism is a way of really that's more, maybe more holistic
0: are cities kind of fit for purpose anymore? Fit for purpose? What? Exactly? Well, fit for humans, I guess, is probably really what I'm asking.
1: Yes, well, it's an interesting question, because on the one hand, if you listen to UN Habitat, etc, you know, it's saying, well, in the future, you know, we're we're shifting from this urban and rural sort of balance to, you know, more and more people will be living in cities. So there is that sort of focus. And it's definitely something we have to think about. I mean, even here in Geneva, we think about very carefully, are we going to eat up? It's, you know, we don't have much territory in Switzerland. (laughs) So are we going to eat up all the countryside and continue sprawling? Or are we going to densify the city? And of course, there's all the all the questions of infrastructure, because, you know, you need certain densities for infrastructures. But on the other hand, I feel also that we need to look also more and more And study the rural, and instead of everybody flocking to the city, what do we do in rural areas so that people don't leave the rural areas? How do we make them more attractive? We have a lot of whether it's in Italy or or places even France, you know, these shrinking villages or cities where people are leaving because there's not activity, etc. Obviously, now with you know digital infrastructure, it's become and the COVID has shown us it's becoming increasingly accessible. I mean, I know lots of people now when we're on webinars, you know, they're up in the mountains, (laughs) you know, I was nearly going to be up in the mountains today, but I wasn't sure about my internet connection. So I came back to the city. But uh, so for me, I think the question is, is the balance? And on the other hand, there's something quite interesting, if I'm very interested in biodiversity. And because we have this intensive agriculture, we use a lot of pesticides, you know, you'll actually find, for example, bees, you know, a lot of bee populations, there's a lot of urban farming and bees, they're actually healthier in the city, because, you know, we don't have these countryside full of pesticides, you know, so we find some of these paradoxes that sometimes maybe the city in some ways, becomes more healthy or greener than the countryside because we're not necessarily doing the right things in the the countryside because we're doing this intensive cultivation and we're not really taking care of the soil and biodiversity. So I think we have to rethink all of our structures generally.
0: Yes. Interesting. I'm surprised by the idea that people are moving to the cities increasingly. It kind of feels counterintuitive for some of the reasons that you've mentioned for, you know, COVID shows that you can work from home, broadband's getting better in, in a lot of places. So it feels like decentralisation would be the kind of the primary trend that you would see happening. But you think despite that, there is a reason that people are drawn to cities. There are, you know, there's a reason that people want to be near, I guess, lots and lots of other people. What is that reason, do you think?
1: Probably several. I think one, obviously, there is the economic opportunities that the cities associated with. Now, whether they're real or not, you know, sometimes they are. Of course, it, maybe it's more difficult to survive in a city in certain ways. In the countryside, you can—it's easier to grow your own food. Although we're seeing now that you know that's happening in cities too. And cities like Detroit, which you know were shrinking cities, people have started actually all the vacant lots. You know, people are starting to grow food again. So the city's becoming kind of rural again through this shrinkage. So it's not—it's not. I would say it's not that uh, that obvious. You know, this this difference and. I was actually recently working for the Aga Khan Foundation. I've been collaborating with them and I worked for them on on different projects, but I was uh, reviewing a project that just recently won the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. It was a project for public spaces in Tatarstan in Russia. And it was uh, under the president of Tatarstan. Um, Tatarstan is a very small republic which has, it's the only republic in Russia that has a president. The others are, are states with governors. And so they rolled out this project of public spaces led by a young lady, a brilliant young lady called Natalia Fishman. And uh, the idea was to roll out public spaces, build public spaces, not just in the cities, but also in the rural areas. And the idea was that every kind of space or village or urban area should have good public space. So what was interesting here is that part of this project, uh, it has many different facets, which is also why it received an award. It was also involving a lot of young architects, keeping the young architects in Tatarstan, because they all want to leave to Moscow. They all want to leave, you know, the attractivity of the big cities, making it more attractive to work there by having these exciting projects. So there was a whole, you know, she created a biennale for young architects. I mean, there's a whole series of things attached to this. So making it more attractive, creating these exciting projects and also producing locally. So there was a lot of capacity building instead of importing maybe badly designed or if we want good design, spending a lot of money to import urban furniture was actually producing it locally. So you're creating capacity and jobs. And the other thing is um, having good public spaces in you know the villages, small towns means that young people also start to associate, you know, more with their place, you know, creates an identity, um, etc. So it's quite interesting to see how this project of public spaces was also about stopping this migration, you know, making the smaller towns, cities also more attractive, and also creating these small industries which provide or make public spaces, maintain them. So that also creates interesting and exciting jobs. For example, one of the producers I went to see, so I was lucky to visit all of Tatarstan, you know they have machines for other either they make agricultural machinery but then they can also make urban furniture or they use laser cutting etc to make all different parts of this urban furniture and this is also then creates opportunities for youth to then get into these jobs so so it's just one example that i find very interesting of you know it's it's urbanism it's an urban project on public space but it's really addressing this question of how do we make uh, all these areas attractive and create this urbanity, maybe, or this public space, which people maybe, you know, need also uh, to, it creates an identity, and it's also obviously a gathering space, and so it's very important, public space, yeah.
0: It sounds like you're taking the things that are best about cities and applying them into small places and villages and, and, and rural communities, but also taking the best elements of what could be considered rural and, and essentially make cities rural again. Yes. Yeah. Is, is that kind of the key to it, is to sort of to find the best elements of each?
1: Yes, I think so. I think it's obviously, you know, opening our minds and, and reintegrating, you know, whether it's knowledge, whether it's all this separation, you know, the city and the countryside, uh, etc. So we have to obviously preserve, we have to have natural spaces or natural reserves preserved by diversity but as i was mentioning before with the bezel this it's not always as obvious as we think and i think also at one stage if we look at modern the modern movement in architecture and you know le corbusier who was a swiss very famous swiss architect he wrote about the modern movement in architecture at that time it was really uh, it was interesting because it was very much about hygienist movement, which now in this COVID pandemic is interesting, too, because it was all about fighting, you know, the disease in the cities and people were living in dark spaces and, that you know, it wasn't hygienic. So they came up with this very, you know, kind of rational approach uh, to the city and saying we have to get people out of these slums and so we're going to build these high rise and lots of space and air and so in a way, it was kind of understandable, but it was also very much about separating functions, zoning, very rational, you know, where public space was maybe no longer at the heart of it, you know, communities, et cetera. So, so there's an understanding of that. But there was also, I think, uh, we also lost a lot of the quality, you know, what makes a city. And I think now we're sort of coming back this much more integrated way of thinking of a city and planning a city and designing a city. And also, one thing I didn't mention with the Russian project, which was part of the reason it was also awarded, it was a participative placemaking program. So the idea that we're also designing with the people, it's not like we're up there saying we know exactly what you need to be happy and to make a good space. and But it's also really this co-creating, co-creating the spaces with the people. Right. So that's really important. And it's a sort of also an emerging field of urban design, which I think is increasingly important and being more and more implemented today.
0: It's interesting that you raise both co-creation and modernism in the light of European Commission President von der Leyen has announced this new European Bauhaus as a sort of a, a great new European cultural design-led cultural project Yes, for addressing the big societal challenges. Do you think that that's something that can have the impact that's expected?
1: I mean, I think it's, it's a good idea. So obviously the reference to the Bauhaus is interesting, but it was a certain moment in time (laughs) with certain challenges, but it's definitely extremely important school and and integrating the arts. Obviously we need to take it a step further and integrate the sciences and technologies and nature, you know, have nature-based design and You know, obviously this morning I was reading an article about the natural capital, which is starting to be valued and put into the economic equation. So, yes, I think it's great to use this as an inspiration, but obviously it needs to probably go beyond the Bauhaus to integrating also many more disciplines.
0: In terms of, I guess, ruralizing cities, to what extent is vertical farming a useful approach to something like that?
1: I think it's a very good approach, and I think it's also, um, I think scale is very important. So we've, and I think this pandemic was interesting to show us also the questions of scale and whether it's the scale of our economy where we're sourcing things all over, you know, we have a global economy, but there are also limits to that. And when we talk about resilience, sometimes we also need uh, to scale down and we need different types of systems to create this resilience. So that's why when I was in Qatar and working on food urbanism, which is something I identified as soon as I arrived there, you know, I thought we really need to work on this because they import over 90% of food, desalination, water is all from desalination and the food security, the insecurity is very high. Mm. And when I was there in 2017, they had this crisis with Saudi Arabia and from one day to the next, the supermarkets were empty. So all this work I was doing, the students were all of a sudden really, I mean, they understood the work, but you know they realized how important it was to start thinking about you know producing more locally. So of course, these technical solutions are important because we need to feed the whole planet. But then I think uh, uh, in Qatar, we were also working with permaculture, with soil, with biodiversity, because of course, in these systems, you're not going to address biodiversity. Whereas if you're working in the soil and in the ground, you can create really a whole ecosystem with food, um, food forests. And I was working with a farmer there, Muhammad Al-Khata, Torba Farms, and he's actually creating this whole farm based on, you know, biodiversity, permaculture, etc. And even showing that use how he works on the soil, you know, he can grow things all year round. Whereas, you know, when I arrived there, when I started talking, you know, I even created a garden in the university and, you know, people said, well, you can't grow anything in Qatar. So, you know, the idea was, well, you can. And, you know, he's going to the, to the state of actually saying you can actually grow all year round. You just need to know what to do with the soil. And he uses both new ideas and new technology and also a lot of very traditional and indigenous knowledge. And I think that's what's important is really using this deep and indigenous knowledge. And that's also to do with the cycles of what we're doing. And also, the technology, so so I think that this greenhouses, vertical farming are, are, are a solution, especially what we did with the students. What I was teaching them was the systems thinking, because with this idea of vertical farming, the idea is also is it's being resource efficient, and if you can, you know, use regenerative energies, then you're recycling as well. One thing that in Qatar there was no composting, so I actually brought a specialist and we built a compost heap on the university because you're creating a resource you know this waste is becoming a resource for growing uh, etc so yeah the vertical farming is really a system where you can be very resource efficient however i think we really should be complementing and having for example if you create a, a food forest which means you're integrating different species and it's adapted to the climate you're creating shade and you know the different species are also enabling the pollination i mean you have a whole system and you can really create that in Qatar and everywhere, I mean, we've started, you know, working on that. So I think it's about also these complementary systems, which is also creating a much more habitable space. Because if you just have buildings and vertical farming, you're also then, you know, generating heat island effects and uh, etc. So, so yes, vertical farming, yes, but also, you know, permaculture biodiversity and soil, and really coming back to the soil. And I thought during the pandemic, what's really interesting is, and this is something that I had learned from Muhammad al um he's actually a natural doctor, he studied as a natural doctor, but was this sort of link between the gut biome, the soil biome, and the ecosystem. And we're talking so much about immunity these days. So when we're doing this work, you know, we're really also, let's say, acting or enabling, you know, the whole health of the human and the hell of the ecosystem, and so I think that's important. And as I said, I've you know I've met someone in Qatar who's a brilliant young man, and he's he's really doing this. You know, you could actually see his farm, and someone who has the knowledge of the gap biome working on the soil biome and creating this growing food, also essential oils healing in all different ways.
0: And Qatar's really interesting. it's certainly an interesting place for a Swiss architect to end up. My knowledge of Qatar extends to hours spent in the Doha Airport. but what is it that brought you there? what was uh, What was the thing that kind of made you think that was a place that you want to spend seven years of your working life?
1: Uh, well, originally, I you know interestingly enough, I, I've never really planned my life or my career. And so when I went to Harvard, everyone was saying, well, you know, what do you want to do after your PhD? And I, you know, I had no idea. It was just, it was great to be there. And it gave me four years where I could work on borders and really develop my research. And when I came back, I worked for the Aga Khan Foundation. So they were working in the Islamic world. And at the time, they were actually preparing the award ceremony in Qatar. I mean, I left just before the award ceremony. And I was supposed to go to I was offered a position at Seoul National University because I'd been working on the Korean demilitarized zone and collaborating with Professor Gon Kim, who's an honorary professor there. He's done a lot of research on the wetlands in the demilitarized zone. So I was, I had the work visa. I was, you know, about to go there, but the conditions were maybe not exactly the right conditions for me, and it was really a long way to go. And all of a sudden, this interview came up in Qatar, and I flew out there, and And they offered me the job and it just seemed, you know, I don't always, uh, I also, I work also with intuition and, you know, it just felt like the right place to go at that time. I didn't really know that much about Qatar, but I was, I'm a mountain person, but I'm also, you know, the desert I found very attractive as well. And also, you know, I studied in Harvard, so it's it's sort of a, a university and program that's really well established and, you know, like Seoul National University. And this was a new program in Qatar University. So on the other hand, there's also a lot of opportunities when you're coming into someplace that's new, maybe there's more to create than when you come into a very established kind of institution. So yes, and when I, when it was very interesting also when I arrived there is that all the education and sort of culture was being led by the women, Sheikha Moza the wife of the former emir, she created Education City. So she brought all these university faculties, she kind of picked and choose and then made one university with all these different faculties and really brilliant lady. So she was really working in all the social and educational development and also the Qatar Foundation that gives the research funding of which I was I benefited for my work. Her daughter was establishing all the Qatar museums. Well, it was already established, but she was the one who developed and brought all the, you know, the public art. There was amazing public artists there. I had this opportunity with my students to meet Richard Serra, to meet uh, Jeff Koons, uh, Christo, just before he passed away. So it was amazing because, you know, it's a small place. All these artists were coming and I was working on public art as well, because it was an emerging field in Qatar. And so I was able to get my students to meet these great artists. So this was uh, Sheikha Mayasa. She was developing the, the, all the arts, And uh, Sheikha Moses' aunt was the president of my university. So I was in a university which was being run by a woman. So I must say, when I arrived there, I must, it was very inspiring also because it was really being led the culture and uh, education and social development was being led by women. So I think it was a really good time to, to arrive in, in
0: Qatar. And you were teaching female architecture students at the university. Yes. What's the significance of that, do you think, on a long-term basis?
1: I think uh, it was interesting for me because I'd actually be, well, I lived in Ireland when I was young, so I went to high school there, and I was at high school with a nun, so I was actually quite used to being in a kind of a segregated community. And I must say, I never suffered from it. I had a you know, I had a good time, and. Um, so I mean, I tend not to be critical of the place I'm in. I think I, you know, it's always looking at what's, you know, what are the opportunities. And as people always said, to me, actually, Qatar University was 80% female students and 20% male. And people often said, well, the women are, you know, harder working and uh, etc. So it wasn't necessary for me a negative thing. In the master's program, we do have men and women. So at that level, uh, when in the masters I was teaching, it was mixed between males and females. But I mean, my colleagues were mostly males, so the teachers were mostly males, um, but the students were majority female. But you know, I also enjoy this kind of, you know, the the sisterhood and you know the fact of being in spaces with women and developing things with with women. You know, I think there's also, uh, you know, a lot of positive parts of being in circles and women's circles and developing things with feminine and feminine energies now. I'm, I am, I would say for women's empowerment. And so my teaching, you know, when I'm a professor and teaching, it's not just about teaching knowledge or subjects, but it it is about creating leaders and visionaries and empowering, giving people the power to be creative and also to take on, you know, the tasks or, or to create the projects that need to be done. And this is what we did. You know, I, we identified projects that needed to be developed in Qatar and we, actually developed some of these projects. And one of the projects we ended up presenting to the Minister of Planning. So it was really empowering them in this kind of bottoms-up approach to architecture, which is obviously not, you know, what you would see in, in, a, in French, in French you say, an, Emirat, an emirate, you know, that's what you, where, where you have an emir or where you have this kind of top-down system. Um, but, but for me, that was important to show them, well, you know, you can develop a project and then bring it to the right people. Rather than just waiting for somebody to give you the job and say, "Okay, this needs to be done. I mean, your job as an urbanist or an architect is to actually see what needs to be done as well to improve the environment. It's not just about real estate or making money or, of course, we have to make beautiful objects as well. But it's it's not just about that. It's really about improving the environment and the the quality of life for for everybody.
0: Rapid lane change, you're also a jazz singer and I'm trying to picture how somebody who is operating at this level of uh, large scale buildings and cities and landscapes and gardening and then what I think of as very much a kind of the intimate world of jazz, partly I guess because jazz doesn't have massive audiences for the most part, but also because it's a very personal expression. Yes. How do those things speak to each other? How does sort of the, the jazz singer and the architect in you communicate?
1: Well, I think, you know, at the root, actually, because I've studied really these links between architecture and music, I, you know, I always thought I should choose. And in the end, I never made the choice. And I think the more I move on, the more they're coming together. And I, I always loved maths. And, you know, for architecture, obviously, there's a mathematical side. And music is, is also... I mean, it's it's mathematical, isn't it? It's about proportion and harmony. And if you study the golden rule in architecture, it's about proportion and harmony. And you can actually find a lot of this in you know. Then you look at spirituality and the chakras, and I mean, I love the number seven. So you know, the scales, everything is found in that. Um, and I started singing actually in Ireland. Um, I mean, it, in my family, you know, the, my my aunt played piano. My father always played a bit and improvised and. But in Ireland, I started singing and the Irish love singing. So it was kind of, you know, that there was a seed that was kind of planted there. And uh, when I started my architecture studies, I actually studied, started to take classical music lessons. And I founded a rhythm and blues band called the Mad Hatters a long time ago. And my first concert was actually in the architecture school. We were singing, you know, it was, we had a yearly Balmasqué uh, it was like, you know, the Bauhaus used to do um, Balmasque, what do you call it? A, dress, a fancy dress, you know, where people got dressed up. And yep. we had one with New York, everybody was dressed in skyscrapers. And anyway, so that was my first concert was actually, you know, in the architect's school. Oh. So they, they did kind of develop uh, together. And as I said, I thought, well, I should do one or the other. But then I realized the more I developed that I was a kind of interdisciplinary person. And it's part of one of my facets. And it's true that If you're sort of very career oriented, you know, in academia, you want to have a career path, it's quite difficult to be interdisciplinary, multifaceted. But for me, I've never, let's say my I've never had a vision of what I wanted to be that stopped me just developing in all of these facets. You know, luckily I didn't say, well, I need to be this person or this kind of professor. So I developed both of them together. And one project I did was called Border Meetings. So when I finished my master's, uh, it was on the Berlin Wall Divided Cities. I actually made a CD with, you know, I'd been reading philosophers and poets and you know, so it was, there was kind of spoken word and I worked with musicians who play with improvised music. And also there was, I had recordings from Berlin. So I used, you know, these kind of recordings, spatial uh, recordings. And you know, there's even, I talk about the Röstigraben in Switzerland, which is this border between French and uh, German speaking part. And I had recordings of my grandfather. So so I also brought in recordings with places like Berlin or places, you know, so that was a first attempt to really create, a, you know, a CD with my work uh, on the borders. And when I was at Harvard, I also took a music class in spatial sound composition. And there I didn't have any musicians. So I made these pieces called mouthpieces, which was all with my vocals. But of course, you can make all sorts of transformations with digital technologies. And I do also, at the time, I was going to Cyprus every year, you know, many times for my research, and I had recordings from Cyprus, so I also intermingled them. And then it was a 24-speaker spatial sound system. So what was really interesting to me as an architect was actually how you build a space through the sound. So I was able to really develop this work from my recordings from Cyprus, from my own vocal production and then a creating space through this spatial sound system and then I actually met there was a musician in boston who knew uh, songs from you know byzantine christian songs and also sufi songs and so i actually when i performed this in harvard i actually had a real musician on the stage who was playing the lute and, and you know kind of bringing this this music as well so and another thing, when we arrived in, um, I've actually my partners. The one with border meetings, I was. Uh, he was my partner. Was a musician, so I've always always been with musicians. You know, so I think that's also part of it was being in the musical world because being with musicians, being in jazz clubs or or traveling. That's how we traveled to Pakistan for the Sufi Moon project, and then when I arrived in uh, Qatar, I was with uh, my husband, actually, whom I met in in Boston, who's a writer and jazz musician. And it was just the moment that the Swiss was opening an embassy there. So there was really a sort of a synchronicity between me arriving there with my husband, who's a musician and the ambassador, who was formerly in Syria, had to leave Syria. And uh, so, you know, I presented my projects to him and we actually developed a project called Desert Bridges, where we brought musicians from the US, uh, Swiss musicians and Alporn player from Switzerland, And there was a jazz traditional singer from Qatar, and we had um, also some Indian, Syrian musicians. So we did this kind of fusion, and we performed for the opening of the Swiss Embassy. This was sponsored by the Ministry of Culture. So it was really this bridging of culture. So it's also about the borders, border meetings, but how music is really a universal language. And you know we can also bridge uh, different cultures through this this music. So that was also a great opportunity to be able to create a project um, in Qatar with my late husband, Cheo Jeffrey Ann So what's
0: the current project? Uh, musically speaking, what's, uh, what's the next big thing for you?
1: At the moment, uh, I'm working with my uh, trio Anna, Jazz, and Roses with uh, Michel Bastet, who I used to have a trio with before I left uh, for the US and Qatar and frederick filmer they're both really accomplished jazz musicians who've traveled and played all over the world and just recently we celebrated the 50 years of uh, the right of votes for women this was in 1971 in switzerland so
0: really that late yes wow
1: yes and uh, well it's interesting because we have a uh, a democratic you know confederation with referendums and you know it had to be that the men had to vote for, to give the women the vote so we could change the constitution we couldn't change the constitution without the men voting and it's interesting some places they still vote you know by raising their hands and uh, so it took time you know some cantons actually voted before but that, you know that it became really a federal law so yes it was you know it was very very late So I'm working. I wanted. I, you know, I was inspired by this, and also, you know, just wanted to. I mean, there's a lot of women suffragettes, you know, Swiss suffragettes, uh, and you know, to honor them. So I've started working with my musicians on on a piece called uh, We Too. Actually, it's sort of a thinking of the Me Too, but the We Too, the kind of really uh, inclusive celebration. It's about celebrating how far we've gone. Of course, we still have. A long way to go but you know the idea is really celebrating already um how far we've come and being inclusive and also saying it's about evolving now together with men in a more balanced relationship it's not about just separating ourselves but recombining so that's one thing i'm working on at the moment which i'm you know which is which i find really interesting and and, and exciting. And just an anecdote, because I was obviously doing quite a bit of research on this, and there was a lot of um, programs. And uh, you can see the Matterhorn on, on this image behind me, because I'm, I'm from the, the Valais, from the mountains, and my great-grandfather was a mountain guide, and you know my father was a ski instructor, as well as you know, being a, an engineer and uh, director of a, of a factory. But it was interesting, because women climbers, I remember there was one woman who, who was going to the first woman to climb the matterhorn but women were not allowed to wear trousers and so she had they had these long skirts and because it was windy they could never really get to the top because the conditions were really bad and they you i mean i read about this they used to get fined if they were seen wearing skirts they would be heavily fined you know so there's some really amusing stories about these women who wanted to be you know mountaineers and climb mountains and they couldn't wear pants to do this and so you know there's some very very interesting stories and you know even the mountaineering club wouldn't accept and so now obviously things have evolved but uh yeah so we want to celebrate as well how far
0: we've come is it a good place to do that switzerland i mean has it caught up
1: yes well you know I, i think we still have a long way to go but it's like everywhere i always find i try not to be Swiss centric, Eurocentric, especially when I, you know, I like I told you, I arrived in Qatar, there was a woman president of my university. Well, there were none in Switzerland at the time, you know. So I think we always have to be very careful about how we we look at different countries. But just recently in the Valais, for example, where I'm from, we just have these elections, municipal elections, and for the parliament. So the women have gone from 25% to 40%. So that's, I think that's really great, you know, 40% in the parliament. In Geneva, we just had a vote last week. We're going on to the second round, but there were, I think there were seven or eight men and one woman, and she got the most votes over all the men. And she, obviously she's ecologist and socialist. So I, for me, that's good because I think we need to go towards more ecology. And with COVID, we need to also be socially because there's a lot of inequalities which have been revealed and even accentuated, you know, with a pandemic So I'm really, really happy that there's a lot of women who have social concerns and ecological concerns. So it's really increasing, definitely. So yes, hopefully we're catching up with whoever is the model. I'm not sure I'd have to do more research to see who we need to catch up with. But uh, actually, our president last year was a woman and um, we have a rotating system. So we do have a good representation in the government.
0: Right. Fantastic. Fantastic. You mentioned the Sufi Moon project in passing in that uh, recounting. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Because it, that's a really interesting one for me.
1: Yes, Sufi Moon is a, a project that I developed with my former partner, Jean-Jacques Pedretti, who's a trombone player, an alpine player. Um, so he was invited to play in Pakistan at this a Sufi soul music festival. So I went along. He was playing with his colleague, Robert Morgenthaler. They were playing Horn's trombone. And so they performed there and played with some other musicians. And we met, I mean, it was an amazing festival. I met this singer who's very well-known in Pakistan and also worldwide called Abida Parveen. She's a Kowali singer. And all the Sufi singers and traditional singers of Pakistan were performing there. Also an Indian Sufi musician uh, was there. And I was so taken by this music. It was really my discovery of Sufism was through the music there. And so when I got when we got back to Switzerland, I started to work on this project Sufi Moon, and then we found the funding. And so we returned to Pakistan, and we also brought the musicians. So it was with two alporns and trombone. There were the two Swiss musicians, myself on vocals and then a Pakistani Kowali vocalist and a tabla player. And so we created this fusion, and we performed in jazz clubs in uh, Switzerland. We brought them here to Switzerland to perform, and then we performed also in Pakistan. And the highlight uh, was actually performing in a Sufi shrine in a very small village called Pakpatan, And because the singer we were working with, Shemi Amdad, he was actually the singer in this shrine, the shrine of Baba Farid. So for me, that was just an amazing experience to be able to sing in a Sufi shrine with Sufi Moon. And uh, it was a great experience. And then we also recorded a CD in Switzerland um, with the musicians.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Did the music... Lead you to the spirituality, or was it just uh, as a visitor to uh, a culture that you were you were singing? Uh,
1: well, I was interested. I mean, I've always been interested in spirituality. Um, let's say, as opposed to religion, because I was working on borders and I, you know, working in Cyprus and Jerusalem and living in Northern Ireland and always hearing about Catholics and Protestants and so I, I you know, I really became interested in you know the the sort of that, that yeah the spirituality so i started to become interested also more in in buddhism and and just you know exploring and also you know also the more feminine you know why the women sort of not in in these religions you know so so i was also very drawn drawn to that and um so but i must say that the sufism was it was definitely the music that then sparked my interest in sufism and because it what was really interesting is there that, that the music because in a lot of places, especially in the villages, people you know, don't read or write, so all this poetry is actually transmitted, this beautiful poetry is transmitted through the music. And then I was also, I've always been attracted by Persia Iran, and I, you know, I was very great lucky to go there several times, especially when I was in Qatar and then just last year for the Aga Khan as well. And of course, yeah, they also have the, you know, well, Hafiz is my favorite poet. And Rumi, of course, you know, we all know Rumi as well, um, yeah, so I must say that, yeah, I, I just really discovered the world of Sufism. I must say Hafiz is probably one of my very favorite, very favorite poets. And so Sufi moon, the idea of the moon was was sort of the feminine, but also because the crescent moon is very important in Islam. So it was a way, I, you know, how do we bring together these cultures, you know? And so I found that the moon, that the theme of the moon was the way that I tried to weave the, the music and the cultures to together.
0: Is there a sort of a unifying project or unifying vision that brings together these music and spirituality and architecture and urbanism and landscapes? And is there something that you feel like you're working on that weaves those things together somehow? Or are you over here for a bit and then over there for a bit?
1: Uh, I think, as I said, more and more I find everything coming together. And I think in the future, that's definitely where I, I want to go, where I'm going. And I feel that also. I just feel that that's also. I feel there's an openness and and more, let's say, necessity and reception also for this. I mean, even just talking to you today and being invited, <laughs> I feel that also that my personality. Because sometimes when I was a professor, I kind of hide that I was a jazz you know, because you know now I really want to develop my projects and myself in all these aspects. And I think also that you know we see that. We need more integrative thinking, more interdisciplinary thinking, and I just feel that there there really is a a fertile terrain for this now. And as as I mentioned, thank you so much for inviting me, but I feel that, you know, I'm also being seen in these dimensions more and more, and this is what I really want to develop in my projects. And I think I always had that dream uh, long ago of, you know, creating a project which would Um, really bring all of this together so it's definitely where I want to go
0: fantastic Anna thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure
1: well thank you thank you so much for inviting me thank you
0: That's jazz musician, architect, and urbanist, Dr. Anna Grichting. And that's the MTF podcast. Anna is at Anna Grichting on Twitter and AnnaGrichting.com on the web. I'll put those on the podcast episode page. We're at MTF Labs and MTFLabs.net, and you can find me at Dubber on Twitter. Thanks to T Bless and the Professionals and Airtone for the music to Run Dreamer for the MTF Audio logo, and to the MTF production team, Sergio, Mars, and Jen, for making this possible. You can subscribe, follow, like, share, recommend, and discuss. And of course, we'd love to hear from you too. But that's it for this week. Look after yourself, look after your city, and we'll talk soon. Cheers.